Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. And we're dealing tonight with verses 7 down through 23, which is a pretty good chunk of change here, but we're going to work our way through it. Uh, As you know, Proverbs is primarily a father instructing his son about life. And the father plays the role of a coach. The the father plays the role of a navigator. And as we pick up here in Proverbs 5, the context is one of warning his son, and we were looking at this last week, is warning the son about the strange woman. Uh, The strange woman is the adulteress. It's the woman that you're not married to who would tempt you to get involved in sexual sin. She's described in... um, the first uh, six verses of Proverbs 5, uh, the adulteress, her lips drip honey. Uh, smoother than oil is, is her speech. Uh, six tells us she doesn't ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. Uh, she does not know it. Uh, as men, we want to live stable lives. We want to be predictable. But when we get involved with someone like this, whether uh, it, it's, it's in a relationship or it's... Uh, an internet deal, or the multitude of ways that this can happen to men today, uh, when you hook up with someone like this, the stability in your life goes out the window. When you get influenced and involved with someone who is unstable, it therefore makes you unstable. So beginning with verse 7, he begins to instruct his son about this strange woman. He says, Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. In other words, he's saying to her, you need to build in barriers that will keep you away from this kind of woman. Um. I've got a lot I want to say tonight about this. When we're talking about building barriers and reading the words that Solomon would utter to his sons, we are facing things that Solomon never dreamed of. We we are facing things that he never could have imagined. Uh, We have this um, tube that sits in our... Uh, in, in our living room or in your bedroom or wherever it is we, we, we have television and um, through a cable or some kind of uh, wire that connects it to a dish uh, stuff comes in through that screen that is, uh, is, is beyond belief it's there it's available it, uh, you just click and it's there same thing with a computer The wise man, uh, when he uses those devices, builds in barriers to prevent him from being tempted. It just makes sense. It just just adds up. Uh, Because if you don't, it's going to be coming at you every time you turn it on. So if you don't build in barriers, you're just asking for trouble. And you're, and you're asking for your life to be destabilized. He goes on and he says, don't, get, don't go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. See, what he's talking about here is the need for sexual self-control. That's what he's instructing his son about. The need for sexual self-control control Um, it was in uh, 1887 that a couple from Kansas uh, Horace and Deidre Wilcox visited Southern California they loved it they loved the weather they loved the mountains they loved the ocean they loved the orchards and the fruit, that 
They loved it. They couldn't believe it. They bought a very, very large parcel of land, and they decided they were going to raise their family. Not only were they going to raise their family, they decided we're going to build a community. They were Christians. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They were Methodist. They were followers of John Wesley. They had a godly marriage. They wanted to make a difference. So they not only bought some land to build a house, they bought enough land that they could start a town. And they started drawing plots and laying out streets. And they wanted a community of people who believed the same things that they believed. They wanted a community where they could raise their children. And this community began to grow. By the way, if some people came in and wanted to start a church that was based on the word of God, they wouldn't sell you land, they'd give you the land. Because you see, you believe what they believed. And there couldn't be too many churches in this town that they wanted to start. Uh, they began to uh, put in place a government and laws. And they wanted this to be a place where Christ was honored. Uh, they had seen alcohol absolutely devastate families. So in that town, it was against the law to sell alcohol. Uh, they began to put in place in their little community uh, certain laws that would ensure that families would stay together and that families would have stability in their lives and that Christ would be honored. They built this community. People started moving in. It was a wonderful community. It began to grow. But they had a problem because in 1910, they ran out of water. Water is a big issue in Southern California. If you know anything about Southern California, they piped their water in from about 300 miles north uh, from up in the Sierras. But Hollywood, oh, by the way, did I tell you? They named their community Hollywood. Hollywood was started as a community that would be based on the principles of the Word of God and instill family values in as many people as possible. But they ran out of water in 1910, so they had to annex themselves to Los Angeles in order to get water. And then what happened right after that is that movie studios began to move in to Southern California. And can I read you something from Paul Johnson's book, The History of American People? This is uh, quite, quite fascinating. In 1913, over 10,000 citizens of Los Angeles signed a petition to ban movie making <clears throat> within the city limits. They signed themselves as conscientious citizens and claimed that movies would bring immorality. Uh, Johnson asked, were they so far wrong? But they were turned down, and by 1915, the Hollywood payroll was already $20 million annually and growing fast. The new arrival was just too big to be ejected. Um, isn't that interesting? In 1913, they were concerned about the influence of movies. Now, have you ever seen movies made in 1913 or 1914? I mean, you don't get the sense that they're a great threat to your family. You don't get the, the sense that they're trying to undermine the stability of the family unit, do you? But there was, something that, there was something in the fabric of that that made those people uh, uh, concerned. Uh, later in, in his book, Johnson highlights the fact that their concerns were based on, um, obviously, some very good vision and some very good insight. Because in talking about the film industry, um, he mentions this, uh, that up until the 1950s in films, the quote-unquote Norman Rockwell image was basically the image that was laid out. There were principles of morality. There were principles of truth. I remember seeing a movie on Turner Classic Movies a couple years ago, and it was done by the guy who did the, um, what's the movie they always show at Christmas with Jimmy Stewart? Wonderful Life. Wonderful Life. Uh, Frank Capra. It was another movie that Capra did, 
And at the end of the movie, just before it went to the end, it faded not to the end, but it faded to this scripture verse. And the scripture verse was, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That was the whole point of Capra's movie. It was that way up until 1953. And then as Johnson points out, I'll just pick it up in midstream here. <clears throat> in 1953, for the first time, the adultery theme was picked up in the movie From Here to Eternity. In 1956 came Baby Doll, described by Time Magazine as just possibly the dirtiest American-made motion picture that has ever been legally permitted. Hollywood dealt with, um, uh, with open sex in 1957, homosexuality in 1958 in the movie Compulsion, and abortion in 1959 in the movie Blue Denim. Um, December 5th, 1953 was the Herald of the Soft Porn Magazines, uh, the lubricious Peyton Place was the six million copy bestseller of 56 and 58. Lolita introduced the sexual nymphet in 1958. And in 1959, Lady Chatterley's Lover was at last published without prosecution. Movies of these best-selling fictions quickly followed. Um, I, I find it interesting that today when we say Hollywood, well, everyone knows what we're talking about. Hollywood tends to stand... Uh, against this book. Have you noticed that? Have you picked up on that? Uh, we mentioned last week that one of the things that Proverbs is talking about and one of the things that, that Proverbs is heralding is the fact that men are to be stable. They're to be stable in their commitments. They're to be stable in their careers. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't ever struggle, but it means if you're struggling, you keep getting up everyone and going to work. Uh, men are to be stable financially. Doesn't mean they don't ever struggle, but it means they're committed to, uh, to paying their bills, they're committed to being responsible, paying their taxes, all these. See, stability is a good thing. What we don't realize at times is that the lure of sexual temptation can destabilize one's life. Now, you talk about a community like Hollywood. Started out as a Christian community, basically built to the glory of God. And look what's happened to it. You see, the very thing they wanted to avoid is what's happened. Uh, the very thing that Scripture teaches, um, you've you got to be very, very careful today. We have a rating system for movies. Have you ever had the experience of going to a movie with your kids and you thought and then you got in the movie and you thought you look at your wife and say what is this movie rated because you got to ask yourself who's setting the standards for the ratings you see who, who's coming up with these ratings you see somebody's setting the standard well the question is what's their standard and what becomes very very obvious is their standard is not your standard or my standard uh, things have changed radically uh, there's another city in California uh, called San Francisco. San Francisco does not have the same background uh, that the city of Hollywood has. Again, I quote, uh, I quote from Johnson. Uh, in his survey of the history of the United States, it's really fascinating because uh, Johnson is a Brit. Uh, he was a radical in the 60s. Um, and then uh, had a change and grew up and matured and he views history from the lens and the framework of morality. He doesn't do revisionist history. Uh, in, in speaking of San Francisco, another city of great influence, he says, America's premier sin city from the late 1840s up to the end of the 1920s was San Francisco. Now, that's not, not how Hollywood was, but it's what San Francisco is known for. Uh, founded by Juan Batista de Anza in 1776 and called Yerba Buena, uh, Yerba Buena until christened by its present name in 1847. If you go to San Francisco today, you go downtown, they have what they call the financial district. The financial district, that's what they call it now. What they used to call it was the Barbary Coast. 
he describes the Barbary Coast. It was a red light area which served the entire West Coast, an area where available women were notoriously outnumbered by young men who made high wages, not just in the gold and silver mines, but in many other occupations. And then he describes the immorality that was going on in San Francisco right around the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. Uh, He says the bar at the center of Kearney and California streets was the first topless bar in the United States, 1885. Uh, He goes on and talks about the brothels that were there. And this is really interesting because back in the 1880s, he says there was even a male whorehouse on Mason Street with 12 young men and boys available. San Francisco's record as a homosexual center goes back well into the 19th century. Isn't that amazing? Now, the reason I point that out is, is, is for two reasons. You've got San Francisco, which has got a really strong reputation. But the reputation San Francisco enjoys today, that's the wrong term, isn't it? Enjoys. The, the, the reputation that San Francisco has today is basically the same reputation that they've had for almost 150 years. Then you've got Hollywood. Hollywood didn't start out the way they are today. My point in saying that is this. Uh, Every family, if you will, is a small civilization. Your family is, my family is. Every family is a small community. What is a town? What is a community? So we're here in Frisco. Um, There are a lot of families in Frisco. Three years ago, nobody lived in Frisco. That's an exaggeration. I mean, 10 years ago, There weren't a whole lot of families in Frisco. There were some families, and there was a lot of farmland. Now, there are a lot of families, and the farmland's getting eaten alive. Uh, More and more families are coming into Frisco. So as a result, they've got to build schools. They didn't used to have a lot of schools in Frisco. Now they build a new school in Frisco about every three and a half days. Why are, you building, why are you building schools? Well, because you've got families, and family have kids. And See, what is a community? A community is comprised of families. Um, a community is only as strong as its family. A church, what is a church? A church is comprised of families. You know, well, what about you forgetting single people? No, I'm not. Because single people have families. Everybody's connected some way, shape, or form. Uh, n- nobody lives in isolation. We all have families. So families are critical. Now, here's the deal. Uh, when you take a family, you've, you've got a father, and you've got a mother, and you've got children. What is happening in Proverbs is that what is being taught, let me back up. The father is being instructed by God to do the very core and foundational work that has to be done in order to build his family and build his civilization, which therefore affects the community, which therefore affects the schools. You ever heard Tony Evans do his thing? Where Tony talks about, you know, if you want to have a good community and you got a good family, you you know, he he takes it all the way up to the, you know. It's amazing how he does it. If you've heard him, you know what I'm talking about. But he shows the cause and effect. The cause and effect. You had some godly people that started this community called Hollywood. But see, the fact of the matter is, once you get outside your own life, there's not a whole lot you can do about someone else's decisions. When it comes down to it, now, it doesn't mean we don't attempt to influence and we don't attempt to encourage people, but when you get right down to it, we're responsible for us, and we're responsible for instructing and teaching the next generation. That's the passing of the baton that is so critical. How many times have we seen it in the Olympics or in the trials that, that you got the 400-meter relay and you got some of the fastest people in the world, some of the greatest athletes in the world, but if they can't master handing off a stick, all of their athletic ability, quite frankly, and all their preparation, all their training is down the tubes. The name of the game is to hand that stick to the next generation. Now, you can't make the next generation do what's right. But as a a man, as a father, as a grandfather, the onus is upon us to set the pace. 
That's what Proverbs is all about. It used to be that the culture supported what most men were attempting to do in their families. San Francisco was the, was the exception. But you go to other places in this country and people were trying to build communities and they were trying to have stable communities. Well, how do you get a stable community? Well, you gotta be stable in your life and you gotta be in right relationship with God. And, you, and, and God shows you how to live. And he gives you principles. And, and what happens when we, live with those in the, when we live within those principles, there's favor and there's stability. Um, but see, because we're men, the primary way, the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way that the enemy takes out men is through sexual temptation. Because we're vulnerable. Because it's our, it's our weakness because we have this thing that God has put within us called a sexual drive. Not a sexual interest. We don't call it that. Not a sexual um, curiosity, although that's there. See, when we refer to what's in men, and a lot of this is because how God has made us physiologically, it has to do with testosterone. Men have this thing called testosterone. Little boys are born with it. And as a result, as a result, there is a noticeable difference, unless you're a liberal, between, follow me here, follow me, between, there's a noticeable difference between little boys and little girls. You see? Now the liberal feminist agenda will say, Oh, no, we just have inculcated these differences into our children. No, we haven't. God's put them there. You see? Because little boys have massive amounts of something called testosterone. Little girls don't. That's why little boys are crazy. (laughs) That's why little boys are dangerous. That's why little boys are unpredictable. That's why little boys climb up 40 foot oak trees and just jump just to see what will happen uh, little girls don't do that little boys do it see this testosterone it, it, it's it's not a it's not a sexual drive guys it's a sexual drive you don't need to look at me like that because I think you know what I'm talking about See, because we have a sexual drive, we're going to take that hill. Nothing's going to distract us. I'm speaking metaphorically now. Uh, I mean, we are very goal-oriented. We get hyper-focused. That's just the way it is. There's a big difference between men and women. You've read some of these studies about how men and women are different. They got all these books, these Mars books and Venus and all that stuff. Basically, what they're saying, hey, there's differences between men and women, and that's very true. Um, a guy named Willard Harley wrote a book years and years ago. Uh, I'm not recommending it because I haven't read the book. I just read the first chapter. Uh, I found what I was looking for, so I quit reading. But in, in his book, and he's a marriage counselor up in Minneapolis, and he had all these couples coming in for 30 years. And all these issues. he began to realize, you know what? There's a difference between the needs that men have and the, men and the needs that women have. According to Harley, after all these years of observation, you know what he said the top need for a man was? This isn't from the Word of God. It's just one guy's observation after 30 years. He says the top need for a man is sexual fulfillment. It's right up there with breathing. Why is that? It's because we're men. Is that the top need for a woman? No. It's not even in their top five, quite frankly. It's not even in their top ten. You might want to turn the tape off here, guy, because (laughs) if the wives hear this, I'll probably get in trouble later. But it's just a fact of the matter. Men and women are different. So he's got all this data, top five needs you know, of men, top five needs of women. 
For guys, sexual fulfillment is right at the top. For the women, it's not on there at all. You know, according to Harley, what the top need for a woman was? Anybody idea? No? Well, you guys are you're all getting close. According to him, the top need for a wife is not sexual fulfillment. The top need for a wife is affection. Affection. Now, some of you young guys think, well, that's the same thing. <laughs> no, it isn't. See, you think affection, you think sexual fulfillment. See, you see cause and you see effect there. But wives don't think like that. And see, this is where we get an education when we get married. I, I grew up with two brothers. We didn't have any sisters. We, we be, grew up knocking the crud out of each other, having a great time. But we all grew up with the emotional sensitivity of a John Deere tractor. And didn't have a clue. I mean, I didn't. One of the things, I may have told you this in the last couple of years, but this is really true. One of the things that amazed me when, when I first got married and, uh, was the frequency with which Mary would say to me from time to time, Steve, she'd say, would you just hold me? Did your wife ever say that to you? Would you just hold me? She'd come out and say, Steve, would you just hold me? Yeah, I'll hold you. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Yeah, I got a couple minutes here. Sure, I'll hold you. No, I didn't do that. But it kept coming up, and I kept saying, what is, why is that such a big deal? It's not a big deal to me. When I've had a tough week, when I'm under stress, when, when, when I'm in gridlock in 635, and I'm trying to get home, I'm not thinking, you know, I just want to get home so Mary can hold me. I don't think like that. Do you? No. You know why you don't think like that? Because you're not a woman. You're a man. See, affection is not a big deal to us. What is a big deal to us is sexual fulfillment. You get in the way of our sexual fulfillment, we're going to get upset because we got this real strong sexual drive. Steve, would you just hold me? That was a mystery to me. Why is that such a big deal? Would you just hold me? You know what? I used to get penalized for holding. <laughs> and now I'm supposed to hold. Isn't it interesting? But see, we're wired so differently. You say, Steve, what does it have to do with Proverbs 5? It has everything to do with Proverbs 5. Because you see, there is this woman that you're not married to called the strange woman. Why is she strange? Because you're not connected to her. But in some way, shape, or form, what the enemy is going to do with you, and he's done it, and with me, is that he's trying, he's going to try to entice us to this strange woman. He's going to try to entice our sons and our grandsons to this strange woman. And when we get enticed, these women are unstable. And when we get hooked up to the degree that we do, it destabilizes our lives and brings ruin. When you read a book like this one on the history of America, and you read about, you know, gosh, the Civil War, and then you get into, you know, adding different states and all this stuff. You get into the 20s, this area of incredible prosperity, and you got all these conveniences, and you got cars, and you got washing machines, and you got electricity, and you got and things. Well, you get to the 20s. The 20s were the single most pro prosperous decade in the history of America. Life had never been so good. But when you look at the prosperity of the 20s, at the same time, going part and parcel with the 20s, with the prosperity was the wickedness that began to develop in this country in the 20s. It was amazing. And then followed that by a Great Depression, where a lot of people turned to Christ. I, I think, I think it was Chuck. I can't say it for sure. I think Chuck pointed something out one time years ago. He said, it's always interesting to me as I travel and I speak in different churches to notice the number of churches that were founded and were started in 1929, in 1930, in 1931. Because you see, when the prosperity fell apart, people turned back to the Lord.
And then you had the 40s, tough years, wars. And then right after World War II, gosh, next thing you know, we're in Korea. And then the 50s, another splurge of prosperity. And, and it was like during the Depression, we kind of got our foundation back under us again. Because we, got, we lost everything, we're turning back to the Lord, and you turn back to what really counts. Because when you lose everything, you're going back to the basics and how do I just survive and what's life all about. But then you get into the 50s and another period of prosperity. So what happens in the 50s? We just read what happened in the 50s in terms of the media and in terms of the movie. You start, all of a sudden, there's a downward slide. And, and, and see, we stopped just short of the 60s. And what happened in the mid-60s? Something was introduced, which there was a revolution in this country. It was the sexual revolution. And, and that was the most... Uh, destabilizing time as a nation. You had Vietnam going on, you had the hippie thing going on, you had the free love, all kinds of nonsense going on. Here's what came out of the sexual revolution. It's okay as long as it doesn't, what? Hurt somebody. Here's the thing about a lack of sexual self-control. It always hurts someone. Always. And you see, in Proverbs 5, as this guy's walking his son through this, that's what he's trying to point out to him. There is hurt. There is pain. Somebody's going to get hurt. You know, rivers are neat. You can fish on a river. Uh, you, can, you can go and get a little raft, and you can raft down a river. You can have a picnic next to a river. You know, they build parks next to a river. Rivers are neat. You know, people, people spend a lot of money to buy property, riverfront. You see? That's a neat thing. Why? Because rivers, there's something great about a river. There's beauty. There, there's peace. There's tranquility. At points, there's power. just depends on the flow of the river. You see? Man, rivers are great. Have you ever seen a river when it goes outside its banks? It's not serene. It's not pretty. It's not comforting. Quite frankly, it destabilizes everything. So these folks in Utah that built alongside that, they call it a creek. It's not a creek now. It wasn't a creek last week. The power, because you see that, that creek went outside of its banks. and what's that? We're seeing houses collapse and be just swept down with that water. Here's a wild concept. God invented sex. He came up with it. It's his idea. He's not shocked by it. He's not ashamed of it. Howard Hendricks has had a great line for a long, long time. Howard Hendricks said, we should not be ashamed to discuss that which God was not ashamed to create. See, that's, a, that's what this guy's doing in Proverbs 5. He's talking to his son, and he's warning his son about going outside the banks. Because when you get outside the banks of what God says for the gift of sex, you're going to have destabilization, and all kinds of people are going to get hurt, and they're going to get devastated, and they're going to get killed. Um, he warns him through 5. Look at 12. Uh, look at 11. He says, you groan at your final end. See, if, if you get involved outside the banks, if, if, if you get involved and enticed by this, you're going to groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. You see, the thing about sexual immorality is that the, how do you put this? The, uh, the expectations never quite live up to what you anticipate before you get into it. Um, it's the last time you had a good steak. I mean a really good steak. Uh, I mean a good steak, baked potato. I mean, I mean the real thing, you know? I mean, there's nothing like a good steak, meat. Nothing like it, you know? Big, big thing of green beans or, you know, asparagus. Just good stuff. 
salt, pepper, A1, the whole thing. You know, you're washing it down with iced tea. I mean, that's life. That's why we exist. <laughs> it's for moments like that. Not a bad steak, a good steak. A great meal. I mean, nothing like it. Sexual temptation. You know what the enemy does? With these adulteresses and all this stuff. You know, the enemy always promises a great steak. Always. Always. He always promises prime rib. But the thing about the enemy and sexual temptation to get outside the banks, he never delivers. Never. There is ruin. There is pain. You give your years to the cruel one. You give your vigor to others. I, uh, I may be rehashing some stories I've told in here before. I can't remember. I mean, I hit 55 this year. I can't remember anything. But I've used this story before. It's true. I feed my dogs kibbles and chunks. Not kibbles and bits, kibbles and chunks. I feed my dogs outside. And from time to time, I'll wake up in the morning, and it's rained. And I'll go outside, and there, in that big couple of dog dishes, is wet kibbles and chunks. And in fact, it's not wet, it's floating. Have you ever seen kibbles and chunks when it floats in water? You, you know what happens to it? It gets very nasty. It gets reprehensible. What it does is it gets soggy. And what it does is it bloats and it floats. Not even a dog will eat that stuff. Not even, it's the most horrific stuff in the world. There's nothing alluring about it. Here's the thing about the enemy. The enemy always offers prime rib, but the best the enemy can give is bloated kibbles and chunks. That's the best he can offer because it's outside of the banks of God's provision. That's what he's trying to say to this kid. And here's the thing. As men, we never get over the temptations. We, we, you'll never wake up. You'll never be a day. You'll wake up, and those things don't affect you. We use this term. You know, he's nothing but a dirty, what? Old man. Is that not sad? What a legacy. He's nothing but a dirty, old man. About a year ago, year and a half ago, I'm somewhere speaking at a conference. I'm in a restaurant having breakfast before I go speak. Man, it's just a normal, oh, it's one of those Bob Evans places up around Indiana somewhere. Those places are everywhere. But yeah, it's just a good little restaurant. And I'm there, I'm, I'm eating my eggs, and there's this old guy on the other side of the, you know, he's a regular, hey, Fred, how you doing? You know, everybody knows this guy. And the guy's probably, I'm going to say 80. And he's just over there, he's got his paper, you know, he's just reading his paper, you know, no big deal. Well, this gal comes, this waitress comes up. She's probably 40. And she's taking the order. She says, good to see you, Fred. Yeah, and, you know, he gives his order. And she says, okay, thanks. And as she starts to leave, he reaches up and grabs her down and, and just kisses her. And she stood back and, and just, she was in shock. And, and, and he just, and, and she said, what are you doing? And he just kind of looked down and, and turned the paper. I, I mean, it, it, was, it, it was, it was unbelievable. So a couple of us went over there and we beat the crap out of him. <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't do that. But the manager went up to him, and uh, I thought, what, a, what? Is that guy married? Does that guy have grandkids? Does that guy have grandkids? See, there's a guy about 80 years old that couldn't handle, at 80, he couldn't handle himself when it came to sexual temptation. You know what that tells me? That guy's whole life, he's been out of control. There's some stories there with that guy. That's a great sadness 
Now, here's the way it ought to be. Note, if you would, verse 15. He's saying, all right, son, now let me give this to you. He says, drink water from your own cistern. I love how he puts this. You getting this, guys? Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own. Hey, don't go to somebody else's well. You drink out of your own well. Um, another way of putting this, you know, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about the importance of husbands and wife, wives being intimate sexually on a frequent basis. That's 1 Corinthians 7. God, it's a, God says that's an important thing. Unless for a season it's for prayer and for devoting yourself to certain seasons of spiritual issues, he wants husbands and wives to be intimate physically on a frequent basis. Uh, there's a reason God, in fact, turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. I want to show you this. See, the scriptures are not prudish. The, the scriptures are not afraid to deal with stuff. They, they deal with it head on. Look at uh, chapter uh, 7 of 1 Corinthians verse 5. He says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Um, men have a sexual drive. I don't talk to women a whole lot. I, I've talked to, I, I talked to a group of women. I talked to 2,000 women in Portland, Oregon in 1990 at a Multnomah pastors conference in Portland, Oregon. The last time I talked to a group of women was in November at a church in, uh, in San Luis Obispo, California. And there were about 200 women. And um, one of the things they asked me to talk about is, what do our husbands need? And I gave them several things, and I ended with going to 1 Corinthians 7. And I read this verse to them. And I said, now, before I make my comments, I should say this is my last comment, and then I'm literally getting in a car and driving to the airport, and I'm heading out of town. But here's what I want to say to you. Based on 1 Corinthians 7, 5, here's what I want to say to you is have sex frequently with your husband. And there were two audible gasps in the room. <laughs> one back here and one over here. I mean, just like that. <clears throat> I said, I refer, to, I refer you to the word of God. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. And then I explained to him, that your husband is wired differently than you are. That's a very important thing to him. Uh, it's not as big on the radar screen of a woman as it is on a man. You don't have the, the drive that he has. But if you're sensitive, you can sure make this guy happy. And you know what? It's really good to have a happy guy sexually. If your husband is fulfilled by you, he's not going to be out looking around. See, the principle is this. If you've got Rocky Road in the freezer, you don't need to go out late at night looking for it. And I thought, I better quit right there and leave. <laughs> now, your guys, does that make sense to you? It makes all kinds of sense. Some of those women were shocked. Some of them were stunned. Uh, those were the women that needed to hear it. Um, it's a big deal for us. It's going to be a big deal for our sons. It's going to be a big deal for our grandsons. So he just gets right with it. Drink water from your own cistern. Fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street? You're getting what he's saying here. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. <gasps> you know what that word breast means in the original? It means breast. <laughs> That's what it means. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now know what it says. It says as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Not somebody else's breast. Not someone on TV. Not someone on the internet. Let her breast. Be exhilarated always 
with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom or the breast of a foreigner? All the ways of the Lord, all the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go away. Instead of listening to the scriptures, he ignores it to his own demise. So, so guys, you know what? I mean, I mean listen, we're, we're in this culture, as, as Tom Wolfe, uh, this novelist, Tom Wolfe, who's written all these different books, he's got a new novel out right now, and he's doing a lot of interviews. But, uh, you know, he's an Upper West Side New York guy from England originally, I believe. And, uh, uh, no, he's from, he's from the South, but he lives in New York now. He always wears a white suit. You know, he's part of the intelligentsia. But he's written this new novel, which I haven't read and I'm not going to read, but it's about what has happened sexually in America. And in an interview that he gave recently, I believe to The Guardian in Britain, he said, I was part of the sexual revolution in the 60s. But he said, I have to tell you that I am astonished at what's happened since the 60s. Everything is open. He said, in the 60s, we had a sexual revolution. Today, we have a sexual carnival. It is totally and completely out of control. So now more than ever, see, with this coming at us from all different sides and from all different venues, and, and with it, the promise of uh, uh, you got to find yourself. Uh, you got to fulfill yourself. Uh, it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. It always hurts somebody. It always destroys. It, it, it always maims. When, uh, when, when a guy has sex outside of marriage and she gets pregnant, well, gosh, well, you know, well, we can't do that. We can't have this baby. So wait, well, you go abort the baby. Well, that's not a baby. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just a bunch of cells. No, it's a child made in the image of God. So the guy goes and, you know, takes her down, and she gets the abortion. I mean, this was, that was done for years and years before we had uh, clinics and shopping centers. I read of a new abortion clinic that is just, oh, I read about this today. And the name of this abortion center is called Hope Clinic. Hope. Huh. <laughs> Unbelievable. It, that, that just fits real well with planned parenthood. You talk about a misnomer. Planned Parenthood. Hmm. That's them on the phone. <laughs> so he runs over to the, you know, it's no big deal. She goes in there, has, you know, the operation, you know, boom, man, you're out of there. Okay, all right, we got, okay, we dealt with that. No, you didn't. Now, as a guy, you might have dealt with it. But that woman will deal with that for the rest of her life. Because in her heart, she knows. Well, it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt you. You, you just, oh, you mean it didn't hurt you. She'll live in grief for the rest of her life until she comes to know Christ and can have a new heart and can have her, her heart changed. You see? See, it always hurts somebody. Flip over to Psalm 127. Let's finish up here on the way it's supposed to be, okay? There's a couple of Psalms. Psalm 127, Psalm 128. Oh, by the way, on your way there, stop off at Ecclesiastes 9. So go to your right. Right past Proverbs and go to Ecclesiastes 9.9. 9. Here's what uh, Solomon said. And, and as you probably know, if you were with us on our study on the kings, uh, Solomon's life was one of the great shipwrecks of all of history because Solomon had been given a gift of wisdom. God had appeared to him twice. What Solomon wrote was true. It was under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, as we pointed out in the fall, uh, the Proverbs were in Solomon's head, but they never got into his heart. So Solomon violated much of what he wrote in his own life, and it's a very, it's just, a, it's, it's a great tragedy. But the guy knew the truth. And in Ecclesiastes 9.9, 9, he says this. 
And here's the way, guys, it's supposed to be. All right? Now, Hollywood won't tell you, Hollywood will mock this, they will ridicule this, they will blaspheme this, they joke about it. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. There's nothing, be, there's nothing better than getting married. And you both have the same foundation. And you stay married. Now, that hasn't happened to everybody in here. Divorce happens and things happen, and it's, it's sad and it's tragic. But we can't get away from teaching the ideal. You can't get away from teaching that to your son, to your grandson. You say, well, Steve, you know, I've been through two marriages, and I'm on my third. You know, and I've come to know Christ. Great. Then you know what? You make this one work. You follow Christ with your whole heart. You see, you enjoy life with this woman because your life is short and your life is fleeting and your life is a vapor. It, 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 I mean, I don't care if you live to be 100 years old. You know what? It's over like that. How fast it goes by. That's the joy of life. You go through the sorrows. You go through the great times. You go through the ups. You go through the downs. You go through times where you don't understand each other. You go through times where you don't get along, perhaps. You, but you know what? You go through them. You go through them. You go through times where, you, where your kids are doing great. You go through times where your kids aren't doing so great. You go, you go through them. You go through times where there's great health and everyone's happy, and you go through times where somebody gets sick and somebody's in chemotherapy. Uh, you, you, you go through times where one of your kids will break your heart because of a foolish decision. You see. But you know what? Families stick together in deals like that. And you keep following the Lord. And you pull closer to each other. See, that's life. That's the way it's supposed to be. Stuff happens. Sin happens. But you know what's central to all this? Is staying committed. Uh, staying. Not walking away. Not leaving your commitment. Back to Psalm 127. We'll just wrap this up here. You guys, you guys, can you go about another six minutes? All right. Then we'll receive the, we'll have the ushers come forward. And then we'll have them just go right back. Okay? Psalm 127. I just want to read this. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Can I say something about this media stuff and about the Hollywood stuff? I mean, I don't want to sound like some right-wing fundamentalist, but that's basically what I am. <laughs> Um, well, generally speaking what those guys produce as I've said mocks this scorns it ridicules but, but can I say this to you look at their lives who the heck wants to live like that bunch of high paid whores Strip naked in front of the whole world. What a tragedy. What a sadness. I saw an actress give her testimony a while back. And she, uh, she's, in her, she's probably in her 60s now. But 40 years ago, she was in her 20s. And she was a knockout. And she was in a lot of movies. And she did some nude scenes. You think that gal's had to work through some things since she's come to know Christ? You think she regrets? You, you, you know she does. And there's not a thing she can do to go and get all that back. It's still out there. See how devastating sin is? What a lie. What a lie. What a farce. Here's the truth. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. See, you can't do it without him. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. This is the whole 24-7 thing. 
Because you've got to remember this. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Marriage built on the Lord is a great thing. Having children is a great thing. And he goes on, Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. This ties right in with Ecclesiastes 9.9. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. It says your children are like olive plants. When you, when, if you get a chance to go to Israel, you'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is right there on the Mount of Olives. And at the foot of the Mount of Olives, hundreds of years ago, they built a church. There are churches everywhere in Israel. Uh, and they're real old churches. But when you come out of this church, when you walk out, you walk in the front, and you walk out the side, there's this garden. And there is an olive tree right to the side of the walkway. It's behind an iron gate. There's probably an acre there of olive trees and different roses and flowers. But there is an olive tree that is almost 3,000 years old. 3,000 years old. That olive tree was there when Jesus was in the garden, and it had been there close to 1,000 years already. Uh, the base of this, uh, olive trees are real gnarly. They're kind of twisted. They're kind of, you know, it's not a straight, it's not a pine thing, but they, their trunk, the base of this thing is, is broad and expansive, and the limbs, you know, they're like, sinews and muscles and tendons and the roots of that sucker go down, down, deep. 3,000 years old. I've seen that thing three times. Every time I've been there, I've seen it. The last time I was there, I'm looking at that. And I'd been in that church, you know, and I'd been through that. I mean, I, I've just, I walk, I want to go look at that olive tree. So everybody's in there looking at all this stuff. I'm out there looking at the olive tree, and I'm just looking at it. I'm sitting there about 15 minutes just looking at that sucker. And I'm thinking about that tree. And then I noticed something I'd never seen before in that tree. You know what I saw? I saw little tiny green shoots coming out of it. That sucker was still alive. And it was still producing. 3,000 years later. That's, that's staggering. That olive tree is still fruitful. It's still growing. There's still life in its veins. You're not going to last 3,000 years. You're not even going to last 300 years. Some of you aren't going to last through this session. <laughs> I'm about ready to collapse myself. But when we're gone, our children are going to go on. And then their children. And then their children. And then their children. Sometimes children are born in circumstances we would not choose. They're born out of wedlock. Psalm 127 says children are a gift from the Lord. All children. All children. You don't know who that, chil you don't know who that child is going to be. You don't know what that child's going to do. You don't know what's going to happen in their life. You don't know what they're going to produce. You don't know who their children are going to be. You don't, but you know what? There's a God that oversees all of this. And when I, you look down through the ages, you know what this all comes back to, guys? It all comes back to us. This is addressed to us. And what I get out of this is this. It's hard for me to think 3,000 years down the road. That's, that's kind of difficult for me. But here's what I can grab onto. The way I live today is very important. The way I live my life in regard to sexual temptation is very significant. I need to stay within the banks because there are those that are coming after me 
and they need a model, and they need a guide, and they need some stability. And as we follow Christ, he uses us to offer that to those who mean so much to us. That's our place. That's our role. It's very significant. Next time you get on the computer, you think about that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're so crystal clear. Thank you that you're not afraid to tell us the truth straight out and put the cards on the table. And, and Lord, we need to hear it because we're living in this sexual carnival and it's thrown at us every waking hour from so many different sources. We, we've given in. We failed. You know that. We come to you. We confess our sin. You're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, every guy in here, to one degree or another, we've gotten out of the banks. We want to live within the banks. We do that by your mercy and grace. We can't go back and change what we did last week or what we did six years ago or 20 years ago, but we've got today, and we'll wake up tomorrow. We'll have tomorrow. In our hearts, we say to you, we want to follow you, and we want to be your men. And would you use us in a way that will bring glory to you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.